0: Hi friends, Fred Harrell here. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly City Church Sermon Podcast. Just a note that as we continue to shelter in place here in San Francisco, we will be bringing you our Sunday Sermon audio recording via Skype over a Facebook Live broadcast. So if the audio quality seems like a little lower than normal, then now you know what's happening. We just wanted you to know. You can join us on Facebook Live each Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening and subscribing to our podcast.
1: The scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat.
0: let us pray gracious god fountain of love word of truth spirit of power give us grace today as we attend to your word as we hear this parable help us to realize and to believe that you have seen to it that we are here now listening to this do you have something you want us to hear something you want us to trust something you want us to surrender to help us to believe that you have seen to this moment and help us to believe always that you see us and know us and all of our contradiction and your response is always to move towards us with redeeming and restoring love be with us now we pray and help us to be present to your presence in jesus name amen you know i never had to teach a child to say, that's not fair. We raised four kids and all four of them never had to be taught how to say that. Our minds are computing and calculating fairness from our earliest days, apparently. It's part of our hard wiring, it seems. I know you all may have said to yourselves or out loud, thanks be to God, when this parable was just read. But I question if you really meant it. I mean... Maybe you were scratching your head, because if you were scratching your head, congratulations, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to make you do with every parable. A parable is a unique form of literature that is always trying to subvert business as usual. It's always coming to us and using paradox to undo our reliance on our version of logical thinking. And this parable is one of a series of parables that are called parables of the kingdom, because they begin like this one. The kingdom of heaven is like. When you hear kingdom, think reign of God or what life is like under the rule of God. It's Jesus' most common metaphor to describe the final and big picture of things. So here's what we're dealing with in this particular parable. At dawn, a landowner goes looking for workers to help with the harvest. So at 6 a.m., finds some people to work negotiate with them a fair day's trade, they agree and begin working. And then at 9 a.m. noon and then 3 p.m., the landowner, still in need of more help, finds people and agrees to pay them whatever is right, the text says. And then at 5 p.m., the landowner goes out and finds people that say no one has hired them, so he puts them to work as well. And then an hour later, it's quitting time. Stop working, collect your wages, the last will be paid first. That's a sign, that's a theme you'll hear in a moment as well. So at the end of the day, there are five groups of workers. There's the 6 a.m. people who've worked 12 hours, the 9 a.m. people who've worked 9 hours, the 12 noon people who've worked 6 hours, the 3 p.m. people, they've only worked 3 hours, and then this group at 5 p.m. have worked only 1 hour. And let's just say the daily wage is $15 an hour for a 12-hour day, it's $180 for the day. So the 5 p.m. people are paid first. And lo and behold, the 5 p.m. workers get paid $180. Now what do you think at this moment the 6 a.m. folks at the end of the line who will be paid last are thinking? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're doing math. And they're thinking, "Woo, we stand to make over $2,000 today. That will work. Drinks on me. But then they notice the 3 p.m. people step up, they get 180. The noon folks, 180. The 9 a.m. folks, 180. And when the 6 a.m. folks step up, they stare down at their paycheck in disbelief. Only $180? We worked all day, that other group only worked one hour? That's not fair! There it is again. This is no way to run a railroad. This is an economic nightmare for their mindset and for ours. And the landowner's justification for this outrageous pay scale is simple. It says in the text that the landowner says, friend, and I want you to know the actual word here for friend is, is an edgy word, more like look pal or look buddy. I'm doing you no wrong. Do you, did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And then this question, Or are you envious because I am generous? Wow. Okay. So much to talk about. Let's do three categories. The first one is in this parable, there's an invitation for our life. And that invitation is to be last. Especially for all of us with privilege, with status, with capacity, with health, with abilities, with skills, with the right advantages of skin color. In other words, those of us who are, quote, first, unquote, used to being first. Think about what Jesus is teaching us here. From a social psychology perspective, from a power differential perspective, and I'm channeling now the brilliant Christina Cleveland on this point, who I'll quote in a minute, but using current terminology, Who gets picked at the beginning of the day? People who are documented. People who speak the language. People who are white. People who are physically able and mentally able. It's the men. It's all the people who seem most fit for employment. Who gets picked in the middle of the day? People who have less power than those picked first. Who gets picked at the end of the day? The people who have been passed over by everyone looking to employ people. The riffraff. The marginalized. Those that, quote, don't have anything to offer, unquote. They're not considered central to this productive life we talk about. Yet Jesus came to them and said, You are actually central to what I'm trying to do. You are important on my farm. Come and work for me. I'll pay you what I'm paying the privileged people. And when he does this, the privileged people are so angry. Christina Cleveland, Ph.D., social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist says, Jesus doesn't care about equality. He doesn't care about treating everyone the same. He cares about equity. He cares about making things right. And that means the people who have been accustomed to being picked first seen as the most important, the most influential, the most necessary to what God is doing, those are the people Jesus is inviting to take a back seat so that he can make things right. Wow. Jesus then says at the end of the parable, the last will be first and the first will be last. See, this is the pathway to the kingdom of heaven. This is what's necessary to make all things right. Jesus is saying, I'm switching up the entire power balance. Some people do get more of a voice than others, and that, friends, makes people mad. Yet Jesus does this all the time. Just look for it. In almost every story, he privileges the experience and the stories and the lives of those on the margins, and seeks to give the microphone to them, because it is from those experiences where wisdom where seeing on a different plane can turn the world upside down. Jesus is challenging us to a different way of being in the world. He is saying, friends, I'm trying to save your life here. Your pathway to resurrection is in being last. Your redemption is in being last. Your connection to everyone around you is in being last. You have an irreplaceable and important role to play, and it is in being last. I am inviting you to the liberation, we might say, of being last. And the very people who you have been conditioned to overlook, to minimize, dehumanize, to question their experience, their perspective, their reality, their pain, it's those people who are going to lead the way. They're the ones I'm empowering to be first, says Jesus. I mean, here's an example. You know that first miracle Jesus ever performed at Cana of Galilee, the wedding there, and he turns the water into wine and saves the face of the host and the reputation of those there and, and, and provides the joy of the feast. And Jesus performs this amazing miracle, it says in John chapter 2, only in front of the servants. All the powerful people there that are enjoying the big party, they just heard about it later. But the people who wist, witnessed it were the servants. Think about that. In that setting, if you wanted to find out what God is about, what Jesus is about, what God is doing in this world and who he is, you know what? You would have to speak with the servants to find out. The very people you normally don't even speak to. They're the ones who know. Hmm? No small thing that Jesus performed that just in front of them. And Jesus does this kind of thing all the time. I just want you to look for it as you read the New Testament, read Jesus in the Gospels. So here's the thing. You know, Social psychology, and I learned this from Christina Cleveland as well, the research has shown that when people who come from privileged groups and people who have been oppressed try to come together to collaborate with one another, with an everyone has an equal say mentality, no matter how hard they try, within moments the dominant group just takes over. And the group used to being oppressed just tends to acquiesce because of social conditioning. So all the social psychology research is saying, no, don't shoot for equality. Shoot for a flipping of the power dynamic, which is exactly what Jesus is saying in his parable. The first will be last. The last will be first. And then we will have transformative table fellowship. Wow. Challenging, right? Lots to think about. This is a fantastic parable to to read and sit in maybe a community group and kick this around. I hope you will if you can. Second big takeaway here from this parable is that this is a challenge to our way of thinking. I'm convinced that part of the conversion Jesus calls us into is a converting of the way we think. This is why the word repentance is an important word. It's metanoia. It means to change your mind, change your thinking. Jesus comes to mess with our hard wiring in the brain, to call us when we're ready to hear it, and that's very important. Out of our dualistic thinking that puts the whole world into a transaction, into I scratch your back, you scratch mine, which is just exhausting for you and those around you. I mean, it's necessary to start out that way. We need rules and we need either-or's to help us navigate the world. But at some point, the contradictory nature of reality floods into our lives, and we find our way to both-and thinking, because we are seeing the contradictions in ourselves, in others, in life, in God. It usually comes through great love or great suffering, and unfortunately, usually it's suffering, I'm afraid. And when that happens, the black-white way of thinking just doesn't work anymore. Things don't compute. This is unfair! Starts to come out of our mouth a lot. Has it happened to you yet? I raised this child with a set of values, and now they have no interest in those values. I love this spouse with faithfulness, and they have betrayed me. I took good care of my body, and I'm being ravaged with a disease. I played by the rules my whole life, and I see horrible people's careers skyrocketing. I worked really hard at a craft, and COVID-19 has me starting a new career from the bottom. I looked up to this person, and they have turned out to be as big a mess as I am. I cared and loved my child or my friend or my spouse, and now they have tragically died. Have you hit the wall yet? I mean, it could be something really subtle, like you just wake up one day and realize that you're not even sure if you believe any of this anymore. And you have little to no interest in the church or God or any of it. It just doesn't, I don't know, taste. Parables like this your friend because the nature of our existence is being revealed as just like this parable not computing not easily compartmentalized upside down even the dualisms that were so useful for so long good evil clean unclean fair unfair successful unsuccessful rich poor deserving undeserving blessing curse reward punishment these ways of the world are great until life happens. And we begin to call into question not just our own way of thinking, but God and God's sense of fairness and justice, like those in this story who woke up at 6 a.m. to work. It is at this point that we don't do, we, that we don't do away with our simple way of putting everything into either-or categories, but we make sense of those either-or categories differently. We begin to experience them in a unity of all that is. I hope that makes sense. It might not yet, and that's okay. God becomes not the keeper of dualisms, but the unifier. Suffering, as theologian Jürgen Moltmann would say, is part of God, but so is joy. In God's unifying presence, suffering and joy can be held together in love. Life isn't fair or unfair, it just is. And when we are most fortunate, that isness is experienced as grace radical, generous grace as gift. Paula Darcy, an author, playwright, psychotherapist, at the age of 27 and pregnant with her second child, lost her husband and first child in an accident with a drunk driver. And Paula has told many stories of being shaken out of the good and necessary spirituality of the first half of her life, but then also the long journey into spirituality for the second half of her life. She tells a story about her friend, Susan. It is at a time when they are both older. Paula has finally moved through her darkness into a mature spirituality of grace. Susan's faith has also been challenged by loss, the loss of a divorce, and she had moved into a deeper spirituality of grace. Paula happened to be visiting Susan when Susan received the same terrible news that had rocked Paula's world. Susan's 22-year-old son, Mark, on his way home from college, had been hit by a drunk driver and killed. Paula accompanied her friend to the hospital, but initially gave her the privacy of going into the emergency room alone to be with her son's dead body. Then after a long time, Susan called for her friend to join her, gently saying to her when she arrived, Paula, please tell me the truth. He never was really mine, was he? Paula answered, Simply, Susan, none of them are ours. It's all gift. Susan said, if that is true, then he can't be taken from me. If he was gift, then at this moment, I will give him back. And Susan took Paula's hand and one of her son's hands, raised her eyes to the heavens and prayed, God, before me is the greatest gift you ever gave me. And now I give it back. Thank you. Thank you for all these years. I don't know if I could pray such a prayer in a similar situation, but I do believe that this is what it looks like to live in the world of radical grace, where times of sorrow are held together with times of joy and love. It is a world in which all law is fulfilled in the deep and wondrous mystery of divine love. So I have a question for you. Can you allow yourself to live in a world that isn't black and white after all, but rather both and? I want you to know that Christian spirituality stands ready to lead you with Jesus who is both divine and human, with a God who is both three and one. See, biblical math isn't offered in school, but life invites us to embrace it. Think about that. And then thirdly and lastly, this is a picture of God. I mean, all these parables give us a picture of God and how God organizes the world, how God's logic, God's economy is so different than our default way of thinking. And here God is portrayed as a landowner who couldn't stop pursuing workers, couldn't stop interrupting lives, couldn't stop employing, couldn't stop coming for his people. Nadia Bulls Weber, in a sermon on this text, and you'll you'll be able to hear she's talking about a number of different parables from Scripture. She says this, Like a parent throwing a wedding feast, God goes out into the street and just grabs up any old wretch. (laughs) Like a sower who just wantonly, wastefully casts handfuls of seed, God just can't seem to be discerning. What is wrong with God? God is like a father who runs out into the street to embrace his wasted betrayer of a son. God simply insists on coming to get us, insists on making all things new, insists on ripping out our old hearts and replacing them with God's own. Friends, you know what this means. This means, thank God, that the kingdom of God is not just for the nice people who are always courteous. It's not just for the hard workers who keep their nose clean. It's not just for the dutiful and diligent. It's not just for the liberal progressives who talk a good game about inclusion or the protectors of the past who want to stand in the way of change. It's for everybody. Even that person putting up horrible memes on Facebook. (laughs) Them too. Because God hires the 6am crowd and the 5 p.m. crowd and pays them the same I have a question for you my last question of this sermon and I would argue this is a more prevalent and this is more prevalent in your psyche than you might be able to acknowledge or even access right now here it is are you ready can you forgive God for being so generous Can you forgive God for being so generous? Have you forgiven God for being so generous? You know, this is what Jonah was struggling with to reference Jonathan Gunlock's two excellent sermons on Jonah in recent weeks. And here's why you can believe all of this. Here's why I can believe all of this Jesus on the cross. Jesus up there being last. The great injustice, the murder of God in the flesh is transformed as the great revelation of God as co-suffering love and radical forgiveness. Mm -mm. As Reverend, the most Reverend Michael Curry, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, put it this way, our commitment to being an inclusive church is not based on a social theory or the ways of the culture, but our belief that the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross are a sign of the very love of God reaching out to us all. Hmm. Our belief that the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross are a sign of the very love of God reaching out to us all, reaching out to you right now. Because there is room for everyone under God's reign, even those who wake up at 5 p.m. and work for only an hour. Amen. Gracious God, thank you for this parable. For so many of us who feel like we're always that person who wakes up at 5 p.m. and works for only an hour, help us to see that your righteous rule and reign is for us as well, it's for everyone. Help us never again to doubt the generosity, the expansiveness of your love. Give us grace to believe this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.